Would you say it's a less authentic engagement with the actual issues and problems that that you're working with? Yeah, absolutely. And I also think this is uh, though this in this case it's like much much better than it is in like, English classes, at least for me. Where <laughs> like I uh, I'm still like very interested in the topic. It's trying to explain yeah. my ideas to the world. <laughs> right. That I spent months like working on. A What's wrong with English class? Uh, <laughs> a lot of you're taking you're taking my lines, John. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, Go ahead, Sean, say it. I was Dave's English <laughs> teacher, so I feel like that was my line. There, I actually got to remove a decent set of classes I, I didn't care about that were sort of in this rotation. Like, you know, you have to do American history, U.S. history. In hindsight, like, I think this is a bit to my detriment. Uh, but, uh... <laughs> How so? Can you comment on that a little bit? <laughs> Who killed Abe Lincoln, Dave? Oh, yeah. Oh, I was... I, I really hated the history class because, uh... That's <laughs> a stressful... <laughs> like remembered I was really upset that on a test we had who killed Abe Lincoln I, I don't know their name I don't care <laughs> what matters he, he was murdered <laughs> welcome to the unexamined education my name is Jonathan Ali and as always I'm joined by my friend Sean Dalrymple in our conversations we draw upon our experience as educators to gain insight into the essence of teaching and learning we hope that our discussions inspire and benefit you whether you are a teacher administrator student parent or anyone else that understands the importance of education in the life of the human being good morning Sean good morning John today we've got something new and exciting uh, which is our first interview of the podcast and this is one of your former students named Dave yes and so it's pre-recorded <laughs> we're going to add it on to this this recording so also our listeners may note that at the beginning of that interview we say good evening so th- there will be a huge time shift between this intro to the interview and the interview itself but Sean can you just introduce us a little bit to Dave before we get to the interview sure so Dave, Dave Oja was a student at the school where I worked from uh, fourth grade on into through high school. Uh, He graduated from the high school there. Uh, He was class of 2017 and went on to UC Berkeley. And so is now, and he'll talk about this in the episode, but is now in his senior year. Uh, Dave was an interesting student because he put some real challenges to the school. And I felt like it was what we've been talking about in these last couple of episodes is discussing what happens with learning when the structure of school breaks down. And this was a a situation where it's felt like appropriate to explore this this school experience that Dave had in relationship to this sort of larger theme that we've been exploring in in the last two episodes. He's also a good example of a a very enthusiastic and self-directed learner. Yes, yes. He's quite sensitive to how he learns. And I think he gives us good insight into what, you know, what a student, and he's got a good memory for what he went through. Yeah. And so it's good to get those sort of, just to have that for the record. Right. To talk about his experience and, you know, because a lot of this is, I think, what we're, the subject matter that we're discussing in our podcast often is just a personal experience that people have, right? That's, that's the, that's how you know it's happening is because you're, you yourself are experiencing it. So the way to verify this is to have as many people as possible, you know, testify that, you know, they're having this similar kind of experience with, with learning. Now, I have to also mention that we're recording this after the the interview is done, and we couldn't just leave well enough alone and publish an interview without uh, going back and analyzing the interview and commenting on it. So the episode following this one will be our commentary about the interview. Yes, yes. 
which we also already <laughs> yes we also already <laughs> recorded is, that so we <laughs> this is the last thing we're doing is introducing this episode that we obviously could not leave alone right, right. Uh, so. <laughs> so if that gives you any indication of how interesting and yeah of how interesting this interview is going to be I you know I hope that's the case and it's also an indication of that this interview was inspired us to think about and discuss and um, examine other things. For example, just to talk about the, the commentary itself in the next episode, Sean, you're going to be issuing an apology related to this interview. <laughs> yes. Yes. This interview reveals some weaknesses that, I guess, of my character that I feel like came <laughs> came forth <Right>. in the <laughs> sure. interview. Yeah. So it's It's subtle. Yeah. It's subtle, and one tends to be uh, his own biggest critic. But still, I felt like uh, an apology was appropriate. So see if you can pick out what I'm (laughs) going to apologize for. (laughs) And then follow us on Twitter at unexaminedED, and then you can send us a message of what you think Sean's apology is going to be about. (laughs) Yeah, for all those, are we even, have we posted on Twitter? Yes, yeah, we've posted on Twitter. Yeah, okay, good. (laughs) Sorry, I'm not up to speed on the Twitter sphere, so yeah, yeah, maybe I should follow us. Yes, you should, you should. (laughs) And then also just one last thing is that after we recorded this interview, I had a real kind of crisis because I felt like that the conclusion that people could take away from this interview was at odds with the actual conclusions that, that I come to and that I'm trying to advocate for in our in our discussions. And so also the commentary was to give a, a forum for me to to voice those concerns, you know, and for us to, to just discuss that as well. Thought police it. That's basically the point of the commentary. Right. Yeah. We have to basically, <laughs> we have to police our listeners' thoughts and not just allow them to come to their own conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I guess that's enough of an intro, so we'll just begin the interview. Sounds good. Good evening, Dave. Good evening, Sean and John. Hey, Dave. Thanks for joining us. This is our first interview, so, you know, this is really new for us, but we're excited to have you as our as our first guest, and we're looking forward to you telling your story and proving all of our theories right. (laughs) Thanks for having me on. Let's hope there's some validation of uh, what you've been talking about. Yeah, and of course, I'm just kidding about that. What we really want to hear, what we're excited about is having, you know, a third person come onto the podcast and talk about your experiences, right? Because this podcast is really heavily focused on Sean and myself reflecting on our experiences, both as teachers and also as students. But the whole idea is that these things that we're trying to understand and have insights about we want to arrive at things that are universal. So, you know, that's one way that we hope to benefit from from talking to you today. Cool. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in exploring this, figuring out how to better improve education. It's a great goal. I'd love to yes. not have uh, all the pains I experienced during those years, like have those be avoided for future generations. Yeah. So before we uh, really get into that, Dave, do you want to give us a sense of who you are, where you came from, okay. and what you're doing? Grew up in Dallas, Texas. Then uh, I actually was a student of yours, uh, Sean, for like, four years during high school. And I may like, you know, relapse telling you a star full just because that's sort of the uh, programmed uh, <laughs> name in my head at the moment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a bit of an uh, uphill battle. <laughs> uh, then now I'm a senior at UC Berkeley. 
I'm taking the semester off because I don't know, doesn't feel like doing an online semester. And in my free time, I spend a lot of, uh, I go rock climbing, like an indoor gym, like pre-pandemic, read sci-fi books, and like, do a lot of like hacking competitions or these like infosec capture the flag competitions. Did y'all ever go rock climbing together? Yeah, it's actually Mr. Darnfall that uh, got me into it. Like I think in high school, him and another teacher uh, would set up this thing where we'd go to a local gym every, like one night uh, every every week. Yeah, we had a rock climbing club. Yeah. So Dave, did did, did you say what you're studying? Oh, at, sorry. At uh, studying computer science. And when there, I mostly specialize in doing like computer security and cryptography. So I do uh, okay. some more generic things as well. Is that something you've always been interested in? Uh, I think so. Like I've been into computers and security since early of high school. Okay. I got into actually computers. What about earlier than that? Like when you were a kid, were you drawn to working with computers oh absolutely like uh i love computer games this is and uh, i guess also like ds games etc i've been playing that uh mm-hmm. for as almost as long as i can remember so so how did you go from how did that transition happen from playing games to getting into more serious things like programming uh i hugely credit minecraft for this because uh, minecraft at the time uh sorry the transition happened for me happened in like eighth grade ninth grade uh, and at the time mm-hmm. i was really into minecraft it had a terrific modding community basically meant there's people who would write tooling so you can change the game code and uh, add more features to it. So I played on servers, right. and to make servers more fun, I got into modding um, and making plugins for them, which is you know, some more seen people were around, which helped the transition for learning how to code. I, I've played some Minecraft with my kids. Was your initial motivation that you wanted to have more features in the game? Like, do you envisioned a, uh, I don't know what else to call it, more things in the game? Like, like the game having, you know, in Minecraft, there's more blocks, right? Like, is it because you wanted it to have more and, and you, you were motivated by that or you were motivated by the challenge of, of creating the code? Oh, it was definitely like, at first we wanted to add more features. Like someone okay. had this idea that it'd be super cool if we added this new mob type, this like, I don't know, teleporting wolf or uh, right. if we could add, have people like shoot fireballs, stuff like that. Sure. And so doing all of that was purely within your own domain. Like you weren't relying on anyone else except your parents to provide you with the computing power in the game. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there was some dependency on like uh, other people for uh, like I guess feedback on how to use these tools and stuff. The thing with doing open source programming is that there's tons of just different tools. You have to learn like a programming language, this thing called Git for software management. These uh, tools for like just development environment things. There's a lot of things going on that you have to learn in parallel. So you, it really helped to have uh, someone who knew these things, you know, help guide you. Because like even if you know what is an if statement and for loop, these like I don't know abstract ideas, of what is programming? The translation from that to doing useful code is a, is a surprising jump. Mm-hmm. How did that work? How did you go from, you know, having some need to gain a skill or know how to do something in the coding and and finding the person who could help you? Okay, so the way this worked was uh, I learned basic programming, like what is if, an if statement and stuff at some point from YouTube or something. I don't I actually, I actually remember. But then on this Minecraft server, what happened was we had someone who's an admin who's relatively senior who like was right. down to work on these improvements. They were they were pretty busy. I think I don't know, the person at that time was a busy college student. So they were willing to help like mentor how to contribute to the code. What's their motivation? For, for helping you learn it. Oh, uh, they also wanted the features and they didn't want to do the, the work of uh, programming it. They were just too busy. Okay, so it's kind of like you, you'll you do the 
the grunt work if they show you how to do it. Yeah, though at least my mind at the time didn't definitely didn't think of it in those terms. <laughs> right. Yeah. So so your mind didn't think of it in those terms. I mean, did what what did you? How did you think of it? Did you think it was just fun? Yeah, it was fun, and we're both working this thing together to make the server a, a more fun place. And everyone was really excited about on the server about someone's making these things. So it was just yeah something I was doing for entertainment to have a more fun space. Right. And it was a community, I guess. Yeah, the community was really important for, I guess, this feedback loop of do a thing, get some reward, then feel incentivized to do yeah. more things. Like, you know, later on in programming, yeah. I had this feedback loop, there wasn't such an external feedback loop, but this was pretty critical, I think, in the early days of it, of me getting into it. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about that, which you described about that you, you wanted to be able to do the programming and there was the senior person there, a more knowledgeable knowledgeable person there who could show you, and then you sought out their their help and their guidance is Sean and I have talked about this before that in my opinion this is the most this is the purest form of teaching and learning and I call it the master and apprentice model and so in this case you would be like the apprentice you know someone who values a certain set of knowledge and skills and then there's someone who has those right or at, at least to a greater extent than you do and you know you seek out a relationship with them that they would teach you those things and normally there's the incentive for the master also is to spread this knowledge and skills, but also the teacher gets the benefit of a worker, basically, you know, someone to perform some tasks. Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting that what you're describing to me sounds a lot like that that kind of situation. Yeah, I definitely think it was. The situation describes also what you see in like academia for research. Right, right, exactly, right. Do you feel like that you've had a parallel with that in academia in your life? Yeah, though I think the level of hands-onness is vastly different. Like, you know, this programming model, I, I may be like you know, describing it as a mentorship, but it often equates to, you know, just being given things to Google and look up or brief explanation of errors. Whereas in academia, it's been way more sort of hands-on where the professor, like, I guess for context, let me back up a second. I do research in cryptography. This is one of, like, one of the things I do. So I'm involved with a very, like, a very great professor who helps me uh, work contribute to research in the space. So there, like, the amount of time we spend hands-on or, like, you know, learning how to write this, how to write papers, you know, or correcting mistakes in, the, in ideas is m- much more focused than it was in the previous case, which has both benefits and drawbacks. What are some of the drawbacks? Oh, the drawbacks are, like, I, I guess the nice thing with programming was, uh, I did, I spent a lot of time trying to, you know, self-learn or fight like online tutorials or these tools to figure out what's going on. I learned a lot of the, the, the tooling. With you know paper writing and stuff, it feels much more, uh, say, like abstract. This isn't so much a problem for actual technical problems, like, you know, technical problems of, in the sense, like, what is this protocol? Is that right? Or are these proofs right? There, I think there's really no drawbacks of the really hands-on model. But with writing, it's hard to intuit how do you improve when you're just, you know, being given, like, I'm being given explanations of what are the problems and, you know, how do we fix this and com- comparison mm-hmm. points. But it doesn't feel like it's a uh, self-directed approach. It's kind of like a, uh, this is a tool you need in order to explain things. And so it's trying to drive at, uh, explain, uh, sort of ex- external force trying to get you to understand it versus like an intrinsic, very unstructured uh, approach to exploring the space of options. Right. Would you say it's a less authentic engagement with the actual issues and problems that that you're working with? Yeah, absolutely. And I also think this is, uh, th- though this, in this case, it's like much, much better than it is in like, English classes, at least for me, where <laughs> like, I, I'm still like very interested in the topic. It's trying to explain yeah. my ideas to the world. <laughs> right. That I spent months like working on. A What's wrong with English class? Uh, <laughs> a lot of- you're, taking, you're taking my lines, John. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, Go ahead, Sean, say it. I was Dave's <laughs> English teacher, so I feel like that was my line. <laughs> yeah. 
So Dave, what's wrong with English class? <laughs> so um, a lot of things, though. Most like I think within the constraints of English class, you were uh, perhaps like one of the best teachers I could ask for in the sense that you try to minimize these constraints as far as possible. So one of the problems is just the, what is the idea of English class? Okay, I give you this book and you're supposed to read it and have some very strong opinion and write up this opinion. And your opinion needs to be like well thought out, shouldn't be an existing opinion, etc. Et and then well evidence throughout the book. Mm-hmm. So I first take a problem with like, what is, what is the goal of this? Like I, I get the goal is that to try to teach you the mechanics of how to write about things, how to structure logic, etc. But I, right. it's very constraining trained this environment that is of no interest to me. So yeah. we read like... <laughs> I have to say, Dave, you've, you've understood English class very well, <laughs> surprisingly <laughs> for someone who doesn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, grapp- I spent a lot of time grappling with what is the point here and Mr. Darrell yeah. helping with, you know, what is the point. So what would you say to Dave, Sean, when... When he would ask you, what's the point? It's funny. I think I have a bit of a of a reputation for telling the students to like come up with their own point, but I think uh, I probably when I was I don't think I deserved that reputation because I think I was pretty insistent on certain <laughs> beliefs in class, certain certainly about Shakespeare. And if I would if Dave would bring something up like that, what's the point? I actually didn't have to answer him that much because of the of his fellow classmates who were so charged about anything we were reading. I think it usually, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, would devolve into some sort of debate between you and some classmates who uh, I think we can both vividly uh, recall <laughs> in our minds right now. Yeah. Who, who a- a- excellent students, wonderful students, and they saved me a ton of work debating with Dave because Dave so quickly saw the extent of what I was doing and determined for himself that what I was doing was not necessarily what he needed to do. <laughs> and so. Right. So the so the other students helped uh, divert some of that and uh, engage in some friendly friendly debate. I think there. Though I'm not too sure how much to talk about the meta conversation. Like I, I do think you get credit for uh, saying that you know whenever you do the essays, maximize uh, experimenting with things. Like the whole point here is that we want you to ex- you made it very clear the whole point is I want you to experiment with language or experiment with structuring things. So you know take risks, etc. Don't the grade or this you know the value function expo- imposed by the school isn't going to suffer too much by you taking a risk. This is a, a pretty recurring theme that uh, you you make a point to say you know, take risks and don't worry about impact on uh, grade or GPA. Yeah. It's- it's it's always good to hear things like that when your former self inspires your current self. It's maybe a little depressing too. I think it tells you what administration can do to you. <laughs> so, Dave, were you the kind of student that cared about grades and your GPA? So I wasn't until sometime in eleventh grade. Like I think I actively took pride in not caring. Like if I didn't think your subject was valuable, uh, in like min maxing, yeah. like minimizing effort. Like this was something I definitely did for many ninth and tenth grade English and history class assignments. Yeah. So what happened in in eleventh grade? Was it uh, the in eleventh grade prospect that of someone's... going to college and yeah, that's exactly what it was. That um, I started being yeah. told that you know colleges exist start thinking about this, do visits, and then you start realizing that, uh, you start being told that this GPA value function is extremely critical yeah. and start kind of obsessing over that. And also, like, I think to a lot of, large extent, my peers were really obsessed with grades more than I ever was. Like, they do a lot of uh, go to the teacher and try to find errors in grading or kind of cause problems in, uh, to, in, in an effort to boost your grade or complain to administration. Right. 
Right. Like, right. No, I'm not saying this is bad. Try to game know, the system somehow. Yeah. I guess the optimization function was maximize GPA because that should maximize getting to a good college. Right. 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 And you know, I'm not trying to absolve myself of this. I definitely did it, but to a lesser extent. Like I, I still wouldn't focus on English classes too much. Sure. If I didn't think the assignment was that valuable. Yeah. What effect do you think when you started focusing on grades more? Did that have any kind of effect on your learning or, you know, how you engaged in, in class? I think there was a there's a clear drop off of uh, care about grades and uh, actual learning being obtained. Though, uh, I guess it didn't hurt me too much because, you know, subjects I, I liked, like, you know, math, physics, etc. There, the grade was never a problem. So, like, I was always learning right. things way beyond what we were doing in class just because of interest. Yeah. And then... Uh, so I went to an IV school. So some kind of an odd thing about this is that in 11th and 12th grade, you choose a set of classes and you sort of stick with that for two years. So there I actually got to remove a decent set of classes I, I didn't care about that were sort of in this rotation. Like, you know, you have to do American history, U.S. history. In hindsight, like, I think this is a bit to my detriment. Uh, but uh, <laughs> How so? Can you comment on that a little bit? <laughs> Who killed Abe Lincoln, Dave? Oh, yeah. Oh, I was. I, I really hated the history class because that's uh, <laughs> a terrible, like, remembered i was really upset that on a test we had who killed Dave lincoln i don't know their name i don't care <laughs> what matters he he was murdered <laughs> and uh, such an right. emphasis on things I, I didn't care about and the few times i care about something i'd actually be extremely inquisitive to the point that my classes got pretty annoyed that i kept asking questions but we, we were, it's so rare that we focus on something i cared about and for the most part it was things i didn't care about Right. And if I can jump in here, I think it would be, it's fair to say that you would pick up on some interesting point in whatever class it might be. It would be the one thing that you found interesting in, in a long, maybe lecture, but you would pick at that point until you absolutely exhausted the teacher's knowledge and anybody's knowledge <laughs> in the classroom. <laughs> And th- and that and yes, people would get annoyed because you'd still want to know more. And I think there was an exhaustion of like, there's nothing more to say here. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I have 30 more minutes of lecture to go, and we spent 20 minutes on this one detail that I didn't even think was going to be important <laughs> when I brought it up. Yeah, right, so. yeah, that's definitely the case. <laughs> Can you remember an example of something like that that you got really curious about? I, I remember in history class there was one example of uh, we're talking about Egypt and. I was really interested in how we knew the history of Egypt. Like, where did this information come from? You're telling me this, like, I don't know, first pharaoh lived at this time period. Here's how they were growing crops, etc. I was really interested, like, you know, how do we know mm-hmm. this? Why are you not just... Yeah. Actually, the reason I, cons- I cared about this also was uh, based off a tangent Mr. Arnold made in one of his classes. Like, I guess, let me back. So one of his classes was called The Theory of Knowledge, or where he kind of just mm-hmm. talked to us about miscellaneous... It ended up being talked to us about miscellaneous <laughs> things. About- <laughs> Sean, how do you how do you feel about that as a description of your class? <laughs> as a current IB teacher, I'm not going to say anything bad about the theory of knowledge class that existed yeah. at the time. Uh, but I can <laughs> say it's a it's a challenging class to teach because, uh, especially for me as a teacher, because I am text reliant. And when I say yeah. text reliant, I mean canonical text. That's how I've grown as a teacher. And theory of knowledge doesn't supply you with anything like that. It supplies you with a with a handbook from the IB. And so okay. you tend to have to it's a, you have to create a lot as a as a teacher and so i can see how dave would say it was miscellaneous <laughs> topics about, <laughs> about how we know things 
Yeah. Yeah. The overarching theme was how do we know things or uh, some opine on societal issues, I think. Yeah. And so that was connected to the Egypt farming. How? Oh, okay. So one of the key points of this was uh, you brought a point like, how do you know William Shakespeare existed or was a single person? Someone just really told you this. And then I, I became really obsessed in the history class about how is it that we, we know all these facts about Egypt? Why are, how do you know you're not just making up things or this is not just what someone made up in uh, year 1000 and you just are repeating it? Right. Right. And, and right. I, I do feel like I need to clarify. I believe I asked you, how do we know that Homer existed? Oh, yeah, uh, you're right. I was trying to go intentionally go before the written record, which Homer, of course, famously was supposedly just an orator of stories, a storyteller. <laughs> Yeah, true. And so that got you to the Egypt grain or farming. Uh, for some reason, I was very, there were some claims made in the class that seemed extremely dubious. For like, how do you know this? Like, uh, <laughs> oh, it's like it was just too specific. It was yeah. Like, <laughs> You you wanted you wanted to know how we found that out yeah 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 or you know sometimes yeah, it was... and the, and what a completely legitimate line of questioning too yeah it is yeah you know and and in fact that's that's so relevant to the study of history I think you know of course I wasn't there and I don't want to say anything bad about your program Sean but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I it's it's typical yeah it's, it's typical fine. of of the so called study of history especially in high school, I think, that to just see it as the transfer of information, right, from the book or the teacher to the students. And uh, it's just some some set of data and information that you need to know. But with the question that Dave is asking is actually more essential. I guess you could say it has more to do with the, the practice of of history, right? The mm-hmm. being, his, you know, like what historians do and, and also the, the philosophy of history. But yeah, so it's really interesting to me that happens in, in, in classes that a question that is more relevant, more essential becomes an obstacle to completing, for example, the curriculum. Yeah. And I was given a real non-answer at the time. <laughs> right. Well, and, and it's tough, right? Because as a teacher, you feel pressure to get through the curriculum. And even if you don't feel that pressure, you feel pressure to serve the class as a whole, not an individual right. student. Yeah. And so there's these multiple pressures that a teacher's under, that which makes it really difficult to handle that, which makes it feel difficult, I should say, to handle that line of questioning. Uh, when there's a perfectly legitimate thing to do, which is to to answer what you can and then to put it back on you and say, here's, here's ways to investigate that. And why don't you let us know? Because that would be interesting for yeah. me to know too. But then everyone has to get that assignment. That's the, then that's the next feeling <laughs> right. the teacher has. It's like, oh, well, I gave right. this assignment to Dave. Well, now I got to give everyone an assignment about an yeah. obscure yeah. fact in history. Right. And okay, Dave gets Egyptian grain and, you know. <laughs> now the <laughs> other students are even more upset with Dave. Yeah, it's definitely a tough spot to be in as a teacher if you're not like, you're not, you don't have some cash response for how to deal with this. Yeah, well, it, and it takes a long time to develop that. And it also is something that I think is still even when you're mature enough as a teacher to develop it and to be okay with it, there's still pressure oftentimes from administration to say, okay, we got to see the grade book and we got to see grades lining up in terms of everyone's getting the same assignments, everyone's getting uh, equitable treatment in the classroom, and you're giving grades based on those exact assignments that everyone got. And Mm -hmm. the only allowance for variance is in an approved accommodation. It's also a tough spot because they also, I remember the teachers had like the set 
curriculum they needed to do because of some constraints. I actually don't, maybe you don't understand this more than I do, but they had to do this X, Y, and Z content by the, in a full semester. And if they didn't, there was some arbitrarily bad or some, some feeling that there's a failure of the class. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, it, it feels like that because, you know, you're planning for the IB exam at the end of it and you don't know what's going to be in there and you want to make sure the kids have the best shot. And, and that they have no gaps in knowledge. And they have no gaps in knowledge. And it is sort of a way of absolving yourself of like, well, I took them through the content. Mm-hmm. There's nothing more I can do. Yeah, and it seems like a on first pass, like a very reasonable thing to do. Right. I, know, I, I tried preparing a class for summer for some people on some cryptography concepts. And I had this like really nice plan. I think this would make sense. Then <laughs> I start going to teach uh, this class every week in summer. Then I realize that it's not, it does not go by his plan uh, at all. Like uh, you spend way more time on some background or just instilling that people get a few things understood very well. And you just sacrifice the breath. And I thought that was actually a great trade-off because people enjoyed it. But it doesn't work in the constraints of a school system where you have this standardized test and you can't um, you can't allow this variance. Right. Right. How did you... How were you in terms of being a, a test taker? Like, how did you feel about standardized tests? With exception of essays, I, I think I was surprisingly very good at it. What do you attribute that to? Like, uh, I definitely think it's a testament to me being like particularly good at a subject area, but there's some meta tricks of testing that I think I just picked up on naturally. Yeah, right. One of the first things is that the best thing you can do to improve a grade is take a practice test before and try to uh, yeah. do good at the practice test. Right. And another thing is like my habits in the classroom. I would never take notes. I mean, it's like a policy. I think it started really because I was lazy. Uh, but it eventually developed into some like real philosophy that I'd uh, argue with the history teacher right. about. Because history was a uh, very... Uh, it's very much, you know, write notes about what I'm saying so you can learn them later. <laughs> right. And so I'd either pay attention to your class or do work on something entirely different. So in those times I pay attention, uh, I think I picked up on just sort of intuitively what are the facts that are relevant for the test. And I sort of PCA'd out yeah. everything irrelevant pretty quickly. So you would remember them without writing them down or without reviewing? Would you Would you go back and try to recall what those things were? Uh, ninth and 10th grade, no. It started in 11th grade, like the two days before a test, I, I'd start caring again because yeah. of this you know, GPA <laughs> right. uh, imposition. Right. So did you dump all that knowledge, that information after the test, or do you feel like you retained it? Um. So I, I think it's pretty clear that there's a large, uh, as you know, days go by after a test, a lot was forgotten for subjects I didn't care about. Yeah, right. So, I mean, would you say, like, do you get the sense that your, your memory is stronger than than others um i don't think so like i definitely did a couple i spent like maybe I don't know, two weeks in high school like playing some memory games trying to optimize this but beyond that i actually yeah. don't think my memory is particularly better it was just that mm-hmm. i would have a different uh, approach towards like what to remember but very good test takers oftentimes see a rationale for every single answer and therefore can easily conclude the correct answer because they know why the other answers are presented and this is of course i'm talking about a multiple choice test yeah like the sat and act yeah, uh, this is definitely true. Like for English and writing, I think not whatever the two uh, multiple choice that aren't math and science are called. I forget now. For those, it's definitely the case where I spent a night or two thinking with a meta process of uh, what is the best way to like approach this. Which is a good thing to learn to think about. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's just content light, I think, is, mm-hmm. is my point. Yeah, like you don't, you're not really getting better at grammar, which is what this test ostensibly is for, I think. You just get better at uh, taking tests. Answering questions about grammar or something. Yeah, which is 
is, I don't know, feels like a bad thing to optimize for for society, but it's it was definitely, or it definitely felt like a useful thing to optimize for as a get into college. Right, sure. Well, and I, I think in fairness to the tests, the reason for the tests and the reason the ACT and SAT are presented as they are, or at least originally presented as they were, was to allow for easier selection for colleges and by throwing things at students that it was clear if a student was really good at thinking through things and and other students who who struggled especially under time constraints but it's obviously become a big part of the high school game is uh, is tutoring for those big tests and so now the te- the tests have to kind of change how they're going out there because they don't want to be gamed I don't think they're failing at this though because uh, I, re- I remember recently I saw like some study of like correlation between test results and family income and it was astoundingly high They'd, and yeah, uh, yeah. the only reason I can think of for this is that there's some clear uh, passing down of just meta game strategies that students don't, or- don't organically come up with or maybe the uh, more affluent students have more freedom or more free time to come up with or more like you know ex- uh, external motivation to just spend dedicated time to figuring out such strategies yeah i i've heard different theories about about why that correlation is there like another one is that the you know there's certain cultural knowledge that people just learn they absorb from their environment and that those those tests contain a lot of that you know in the questions and answers that people who come from a different economic background they just weren't exposed to a lot of those things and so there's certain signs or clues or meanings that that point you in the right direction and if you're just unfamiliar with those you're at a disadvantage that's really interesting i think you're totally right like they give they throw really weird passages at you or it's even hard to understand what they mean out of test context. Right. And it's test is probably written by only people who are college graduates. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it does tend towards a certain kind of uh, student. If we could go back to English class for a moment. Um, do you like stories, Dave? Yeah, I love stories. I spend uh, a lot of my time reading science fiction things. Okay. So like in, in English class, did you like the stories that were, you know, expressed through literature? No, I, I think I on, almost universally like <laughs> hated uh, the stories I read during high school. There's a couple exceptions. Several exceptions were because of the uh, passion Mr. Arnold put into like convincing us it's interesting. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank Though you I don't think I was ever like truly convinced, but I was. Uh, actually, I remember uh, senior year of high school. I've, there's this book I found extremely motivational or like impactful for me. Books Little Brother by Cory Doctorow. I don't want to spend too much time on the content unless you're interested. But I was like, yeah. arguing for example, like, why, why can't I, we use, read modern books like this that I feel like give you messages that are critical for current society or mm-hmm. appeal to like, you know, modern students. I have so many opinions I can synthesize about this that like I could write, I could see myself writing an essay for, unlike Shakespeare yeah. or um, some of the really weird books we read that I, I don't know where <laughs> to start. Kind of weird books were you teaching, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Broken April, I think the things they carried, I'm trying to go back. Uh, we didn't read Broken April. Time. Read things they carried. There was um, this play about, I think it's called Gum or something, where it was this Romanian play, but it was, uh, the, the, the point was there's this like cruel person <laughs> who led a town and she had mute. Uh, oh, the visit. Yeah, the visit. that was so weird. <laughs> I still think back on how weird this book is. <laughs> you, you th- <laughs> and you thought it was titled Dumb. Gum. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's amusing and it's modern too. You know, there's your modern play, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> 
or what about Oedipus Rex and Oedipus, another Oedipus book we read? Right. Yeah, we we read we read we read the Theban plays. That's for sure. Like, uh, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, so these are weird. That Dave's describing these as weird plays, and yeah, I feel like putting me on the spot. And and I th- I think my answer to why do we have to read these things? And correct me if I, I mean I'll tell you what my answer is now. But if uh, if I told you something different a few years ago, let me know. But I think it's because I shouldn't have to explain to you to read things you're interested in. I should try to be helping you appreciate things that you're maybe not initially interested in. Uh, I guess there's maybe two different things I have to say about that. Like, one is I kind of disagree with this as a conclusion or a as a line of reasoning. The second is that there's another reason you gave at the time. You also gave the one you just did, but that was basically the Lindy effect that uh, you should read works, or sorry, suppose a work has been in the humanity's mind for like a thousand years. It's not been forgotten. And that's most likely to live another thousand of year, thousand years. So you should focus on those books. Oh, yeah. That's good. I like that. Yeah. That was the reasoning <laughs> I, I, it's like, you know, I respected more. I, I don't like this uh, other reason at all. I think it falls short. Well, I think it falls short. Yeah, no, I agree. And I'm sensitive to how it falls short. Uh, and and maybe I maybe I should retract that reason and, and go forward and with my with my previous reason. So one thing is, I guess maybe this ties better into the other reason you gave, like that the goal should be to get you interested in more types of works. But this starts in this assumption that there you already have a strong set of works you're interested in, and you have enough free time outside of class to explore those, explore this writing concept. But, you know, the purpose of English is to get you to write essays or about a thing you care about. If you're writing about something you don't care about, the whole exercise is kind of pointless. Because that point you're just kind of like making up words to put in paper and making up points mm-hmm. oh, maybe this yeah. maybe this isn't that pointless but it, it definitely isn't the goal you're trying to achieve and for the works i am interested in or assuming i was like at that point in time actually wasn't that interested in reading books so it wasn't uphill battle just get me to start reading them but if you start going with works people aren't interested in you see the spark notes phenomenon which is very <laughs> present where you don't you stop reading them just let's read summaries metagame well dave i think you've done a lot of work to explain why I maybe was an okay english teacher and i appreciate that. Oh, yeah, wait. I actually think you're a great <laughs> English teacher for the constraints. Maybe I hope I, I didn't uh, detract from that during. <laughs> no, no, you. I, I appreciate uh, what you're telling me, and it, it's helping me remember uh, maybe some of the things that I too quickly and too easily forgot. I, I just stand by more modern books should be uh, chosen or more uh, relatable books. Yeah, I'll try to pick more relatable thousand-year-old books for, for everyone from now on. Nah, who needs it? <laughs> See, we don't, have to, we don't have to cater to the past. We can... <laughs> <laughs> no, now I'm convinced by my argument about the, the the book being in the consciousness of the humanities. I think what I thought was weak about uh, what I think maybe is not satisfying about that is it, it presumes that you're going to be a student of the humanities, which I think in my mind, I imagine everybody should be a student of the humanities. But that's not really something that we seem to be interested in as a society. And I, you know, maybe I, I adjust. I, I don't know. But that, it, you know, it's a hard it's a hard thing to figure out uh, how to respond to the what you perceive is important and what you perceive the society really needs of you. So, mm-hmm. and oftentimes, oftentimes it's it's reduced down to well, we don't need people who've read Shakespeare, which I get. We need people who can write a good essay, a good thoughtful essay uh, that's well structured and has proper grammar, right? And you know, you hear the colleges get the kids from high school. They're like, these kids can't write. These <laughs> kids can't think. And it, it's, you know, it's like such a beating. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> so, like I'm working really hard here. <laughs> uh, I feel like this is the wrong sort of like virtue ethical or uh, ethicist approach. Like the, the comparison was like the canon being important to study humanities. And I think maybe it's not the important part to impart on students. I think something I feel is more important is the uh, value system or just like values think that you think are important or stories you think they're important that they can uh, relate to. Like not so much the essay writing skill, but sort of the uh, what the impact would the book have upon them. And once you add this like strong language barrier that's separated by a, a millennium of a uh, conversational evolution becomes lost or just even the existence of cell phones. Yeah. Like, you know, the world before cell phones and after is very different, let alone like the Internet right. 20 years ago. Right. Well, and, and I mean, we can argue about the utility of stretching the mind to appreciating the, the former conversational style or, or storytelling style. But I think I think I need to move on from this. Yeah, sorry. Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be, you know, I'll be doing some soul searching as always uh, about the, the subject that I passionately studied. <laughs> and, it's, and it's complete irrelevance in the world today. But, but that's good. That's good. I mean, a person should do that. A person should embrace that kind of challenge. So, Dave, I do want to, like, specifically talk about some of the things that I know happened in high school. And and I, I want to say that you went from a, a Montessori elementary school, which is, you know, at the school where uh, where I work. And I, I think you came here in fourth grade. Mm-hmm. And at seventh grade, there's a real hard shift into from the Montessori classroom into a more traditional-looking uh, middle school and ultimately becomes a high school classroom. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about any changes that you felt like you can remember about that? Any difficulties? Yeah, there's one that I thought was really bad, which is how math got handled this transition period. So what happened in Montessori schools, or at least the way we did it in uh, the school, was that fourth to sixth grade, there's these like, you had sort of standard Montessori, uh, for lack of a better word, toys or educational instruments. Materials. Materials, yeah. That's a great word. <laughs> right. Then you had these... <laughs> <laughs> Toys. <laughs> the Montessorians are all shutting off the podcast now. <laughs> and then you have these like some some thing called Albanese cards. I don't really remember the content or why the Albanese is an interesting name. Uh, but there you had like these sort of go at your own pace pathway uh, or program through mathematics, and you could like sort of skip certain things that weren't that interesting and also move along faster. And this is sort of this difficulty parameter that adjusted for you. And just didn't feel very like artificially imposed upon you. Like you you were required to do X per week, but you could do more if you wanted. And you could always just get more content. Then once you switch to this middle school, this individualistic uh, freedom within the environment disappeared. We switched this like sort of traditional, you have this class and uh, you're being taught according to the class. And we worked out of this book that I think is perfect for like, killing interest in uh, mathematics called Saxon, <laughs> where what you do is like, you, you basically are given exercises that are very rote. You just keep on doing them. and But not just that, like you can't, you can no longer metagame speed through it because it'll also keep asking you things from the last 50 chapters randomly interspersed. So it was just this awful time of uh, just doing random exercises that felt pointless and being obstructed from progressing to things that are interesting. I remember really struggling with that seventh grade. And I don't, I don't think I went away until I went to high school. There are some stopgap solutions of like, there are some lectures that were interesting, but it was very much that the pace was very held back. Yeah. And and Dave, I feel like this is, I, I sort of clue in on how frustrated you were with the, with the math curriculum, I think in 10th grade, which is, uh, I feel like where you, I think you one time told me that you felt like it was a completely wasted oh, year. Oh, 10th grade. Yeah, absolutely was. 
But I, I do want to credit the high school. In, in high school, when I switched to it, we had a wonderful math teacher. He, he did a fantastic job, uh, I thought. And, you know, in the class in ninth grade, uh, I was still a little bit held back in the sense that, you know, everyone else is learning at, at pace one. I'm at a much faster pace, but it's still new content to me. And the teacher was great for being approachable. Like, he'd often ask me to come see him after class and you know, give me more knowledge. And uh, if I learned things outside of class, he'd be very open just talking to them with me and explaining it. This person did math, like, professionally, or I think economics, but he, he was... He knew way beyond uh, high school or even undergraduate math curriculum. Right. So, and then at the end of freshman year, he told me like a week or two before summer started, you should like go learn calculus this summer. And at that point in time, I didn't know what calculus was. I don't think I even knew anyone who knew what calculus was, you know, beyond teachers. But... <laughs> but this is like uh, I found this a really fun challenge I spent that summer learning like what you do in your first standard first calculus class and, you know, I, I come back to school sophomore year I, I tell a teacher you know first day he's really excited he didn't believe I was actually going to do it <laughs> and uh, yeah he got really excited and started giving me way more materials to learn more and more outside of class but then in the classroom I was really bottlenecked by like at that point I'd far outstripped what, what we were doing in the planned educational program and uh, there was kind of no progression or interest there or like there's no new content but at least like this teacher did a great job of providing me with additional things for uh, I'd say like maybe I don't know half a semester at some point it dropped off uh, I think it's probably my fault due to just being insufficiently proactive as a high school student but but you were still spending time in class and this is part of the structure of high school you're still spending time in class that could have been more enriched yeah but I spent that sitting bored in the room or like just right. like staring at like why aren't people answering questions which at the time was uh I felt this like a uh, uh, I felt pretty frustrated. Like, why are all the people getting it? Now, with, with uh, I don't know, eight years of uh, force uh, hindsight with the now, like, I didn't recognize that there's difference in learning paces. <laughs> And, you know, this is fully understandable. Just uh... Right, right. Yeah. And they probably all know who killed Abe Lincoln. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and could answer it right away. <laughs> but, uh, and this is where, so I want to bring this up because this is where we, we sort of realized, that a few of us realized that the school's curriculum was confining. And, I mean, you, you weren't at all rude about it, but you did bring it to our, a few of us, our attention. And, and I was in the the IB coordinator role at the time. And so we, we put you on a pace to have you finish the IB math uh, a year early. And at some point in there, and maybe you can clarify when you started this, at some point in there, we started trying to make sure that you could go, you could leave high school to go down the street to the junior college and get some uh, more advanced courses. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell us that timeline as you recall it? Yeah. So um, I don't really remember how the transition happened to getting me in this like accelerated math or like finishing the math curriculum one year early. Uh, my experience with that was though still by the time I entered junior year where you're now eligible to finish the math program early, I'd basically finished the entire the course and beyond because one of the things I did in my free time was this math cha math CS challenge website called Project Euler, where you can sort of learn both CS and miscellaneous math things. And it's very self-directed. Uh, so I, I did that and like, kind of finished the curriculum and with many other random offshoots. So I entered junior year and did that, which is also still like wrote sitting in a classroom doing not that much. And then that spring, uh, Mr. Arnold and some other, maybe two other teachers were involved in like getting me involved. Uh, enrolled in the local community college, where I first did like chemistry. And the reason for chemistry initially was that our school had limited offerings of this for like the 11th, 12th grade years. So that way I could get more knowledge. And that was actually, that was a really fun time. And then we wanted to 
start doing math after I finished the IB curriculum. I don't really know why this was the case. I think it was just some miscellaneous bureaucratic decision. But uh, so I, I didn't, that summer after junior year, I, I did two math classes there in addition to like working at some internship doing computer security stuff. And then throughout the by senior year, I'd spend it also doing uh, math classes at this community college. It was the case where like for fall that year, it, I could do it online. So there's no timing conflicts. And uh, the only thing that happened was that uh, I'd have to like, I'd be excused and I don't know, maybe like once every three weeks from morning classes to take some online exam. And then uh, that spring though, there's only, there only one offering and it was during Mr. Darnpool's like, English class. So I asked him like, can I skip English class? Three English classes a week. This uh, community college in-person class was uh, during two those three times or something. So I asked, you know, can I uh, skip your class to go do learn linear algebra at community college? And Mr. Arnold was very enthusiastic and, uh, you know, like, let me do it. <laughs> and uh, I guess yeah. now, after, I've, while I was in the class and immediately after, that was maybe one of the best decisions that happened for my life. Like, uh, that summer, I used linear algebra extensively. I, I used it from the immediate onset when I entered college, it let me do so many more things in my free time. Because like uh, learning linear algebra well is something that you don't really get at most big universities due to some annoying bureaucratic things about how they handle your first two years of math. Like they end up being very badly done. And so you don't get the intuition ever. But linear algebra is one of these fields that's like very core to almost all of physics, all the sciences and computers, like including computer science, physics, chemistry, etc. So having this intuition taught very nicely during at community college, like at a slow pace, was uh, an incredible advantage for just like learn all the self-learning I wanted to do, all the side projects, etc. Mm-hmm. Can I ask Dave, like, what's your style of learning things? Like, when you're in a class, do you spend a lot of time practicing and and going over things on your own, or is it just a matter of attending, you know, the lecture and and interacting in class? It very much depends on the class. Like it changes class to class and also, I guess, my free time availability. Yeah. So I guess I don't know. Is there a time period you have in mind? To, like you, oh, like these these classes that you were taking at the community college, for example, right? Okay. So you're going there and they're kind of extra classes, right? You're just doing them because you don't want to be sitting bored in the in the high school class. You don't want to waste your time. So in terms of learning that material and gaining that knowledge, what what was your approach to that? I guess even stronger because I actively wanted to learn these things. I found it fun. So yeah. what I would do is that for linear algebra, I remember very vividly. What I did was uh, I watched some YouTube videos by this amazing math channel that sort of give you the high level concepts of linear algebra. Mm-hmm. Then I'd go to class and uh, I'll be very in- engaged. I-, I-, I feel confident saying that I was probably the most engaged person in that math class. The other people there were like sure. people who didn't actually like, care too much about linear algebra. So you would prepare by watching the YouTube videos and then go in primed, kind of ready for, for class. Yeah, but I actually didn't watch YouTube videos at the same time. I'd watch these like before the semester even started. Okay. So I got the high level view of what okay. the entire thing is going to be. And then right. after class, like, you know, I do the homework. There's a sizable homework set at that time period. But I- I'd also be using this linear algebra for other things because it's so pivotal that like it I immediately saw use cases for other things I was learning or ways really? of framing it. So I, I was actively using it. things that you were doing on your own. Yeah. Like outside of school. Okay. And there's something similar applied. And that for... must have been really key to, to really learning it. It must have, you know, I imagine it. Yeah. Know, it, like instead of just doing homework and preparing for tests that you were actually beginning, starting to use it right away. Yeah. It's it extremely nice to have that feedback loop. Yeah. I, I saw something similar for uh, maybe out of the math class I took at this community college, three out of the four of them. And for the fourth one where I didn't have this loop, I also thought it was extremely boring. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, this was a decision that we had to make and we had to make it in terms of do we hold the integrity of I was most keenly aware of this. And so far, I feel like I just, you know, IB doesn't audit these things or doesn't really care. But (laughs) 
it's going to be terrible if you get stripped of your IB diploma after this. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, Dave, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I had to make a decision whether or not the integrity of my class could be kept uh, with you being out so often and with the exams coming in May, and so that was something that. That was a hard decision to make for sure as a teacher, but watching you at the same time, it was like, it was clear. It was clear. How can I possibly hold this structure in place when, when this guy's shooting off and, and doing his own thing and is clearly ready uh, for the world that we live in? And, yeah. and so, yeah, you know, we took that risk and actually, <laughs> I don't know if, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do want to say, and I hope you don't mind me saying, Dave, that you got like a, a six and the seven is the top score in English. Yeah. So in the class you skipped. <laughs> yeah. So, Sean, that, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Were you worried that he wouldn't perform well on the English exam? It, well, you know, I predicted him at a five. I'm pulling. I pulled up the scores for this. I predicted him at a five because I knew he was clever uh, enough. To, to get past a lot of the challenges. Is a five uh, uh, considered a pass? What is, what's the I, I, no, Yeah, scale? and I, I, IB five is a good score. And a seven is an excellent score. And a six is, uh, you know, I guess a very good yeah. uh, score. What's a four? But a four is, is considered like a strong passing score, right? Okay. I would say the four is, four is probably equivalent to a B. So you knew that he would do fine on the, on the assessment. I was strongly where do I grade? Yeah, yeah, I... I knew what the assessment, I knew the extent of the assessment and I knew precisely the parts that he'd be missing. And I, and I knew I could sort of coach him at least around some of that. So you're taking credit for it. (laughs) No, 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 no. I actually, it's more of a confession. So, so what I'm asking is like, you mentioned about the integrity of your class. So like what exactly, what, what about the integrity was at issue? Oh, well, I'd be, I'd be once, uh, let me, Look at the scores again real quick to see. Yeah, so Dave was a HL English. So IB wants 240 hours of that class for each student of cl- actual class time. Uh-huh. Uh, that's that's part of what they say you need to schedule your classes so that each student has 240 hours. And I'm lopping off 40 or 50 hours there for Dave. Right. So it's the attendance requirement. It's not a requirement, okay? And so I think this is why IB, IB doesn't right. really audit these things. But Right, but I, what I mean is the hours, that has that's just pure attendance. Well, that's that's how much class time you offer to the students, right? So, right. so they, they're not clear about, you're, you're trying to get to something that sounds like accreditation questions. They're not clear about what they mean by 240 hours. They say it's a 240 in-class time subject, um, the yeah. English, or any HL, right? So, and then the exam in May specifically tests the things that we covered in spring semester. And Dave didn't come to me <laughs> with this plan until spring semester started. <laughs> and so I didn't have a chance in the fall to, to prep him. And so he was, and, and the way I teach that spring semester is a, almost like we read basically every single line of the plays that we're studying uh, and we're having good group discussions and, and Dave had to just miss out on all of that. But it was to his benefit. I mean, I hate I hated not having Dave in class despite what he might think, <laughs> but it was to his benefit. It was so clear that it was to his benefit. How could I stand in the way of that? Right. And it wasn't even, doesn't even sound like there was any trade-off. There, uh, it doesn't. No. Well, go ahead. Dave. I mean, I, I do think it's, it was unclear at the time what I how I do in English. 
English. I guess I, I feel a bit surprised. Yeah. Uh, maybe this was clear back then that uh, I was freaked out of five. No. Like, uh, at least to me as a looking back on it, that didn't seem clear. Like, every time there was an essay, I had no idea what to write or what even the point of the essay was. Right. I feel like... Yeah, you would turn in half-page essays, regular. <laughs> we would have a practice essay, and you would turn in half a page for a two-hour essay. Yeah. <laughs> like Dave. <laughs> He's like, I, <laughs> say, I don't know what else to write. I've articulated everything I can. So. Yeah. <laughs> We were reading things that I had, I had no opinions on. It's like just words on a page. <laughs> yeah, and you were so honest, and it's such an honest thing to say. Uh, but it's a, it's also a difficult thing to hear uh, when you're <laughs> even spending couple of years with the student and you're like oh man you've gone you you've your essays have gotten <laughs> become shorter and, and and less concerned with expressing anything <laughs> so, yeah so you just brought it on on game day i guess and uh, i wonder if i ordered those tests because you can get them back i need to see if i did order. i remember those. for one of them uh one of them was like analyzing a poem and i completely froze i had no idea what to say like you actually helped me a lot with metagaming for this exam because uh, I think maybe partially driven by uh, the fact that I wasn't there for two thirds of it. But just like, here's how you should optimally approach it given, you know, past work you've done, etc. So it turned out on exam day, the the, exa- the passages they gave for doing that being complete were complete flaws. So <laughs> yeah. So uh, I guess I was doubly worrying there, but it ended up working out okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, and I think it, yeah, what else there to say? It was a risk, but even if it'd gone the wrong way, I think it was a risk worth taking. Even if it ended up in you not getting the IB diploma, if you like completely failed English, yeah, I still think I still think it was the right thing for you to do. It's nice that you got the score. There's no reason to punish ourselves now for, for this. I don't <laughs> think um, talking to you, IB, but. <laughs> <laughs> But it was nice to uh, see a student like I've, you know, thinking about Dave's situation and I'm in a position where I make the schedule at the school. I often think about students like Dave who need something beyond the school walls. And I've tried to make schedules that are super flexible that way. And it's difficult. And there's also not a lot of students that are just dying to leave the school. Uh, And I think that's less. And I know, Dave, you you recognize that your pace is rather quick in terms of math, but I think it's less about Dave being exceptionally paced in math or other subjects. But I think it's a lot about uh, Dave's making decisions early on on how to follow what he enjoyed. So mm-hmm. that that's what I like. That's why I wanted to interview you, Dave. That's the story that I wanted to talk about. Or uh, I, I guess I, I did think there's one interesting point to talk about for how it extrapolates other students. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was a pretty ac- you know, accurate summary you just gave. But uh, I guess one question to think about for other students is like, if they're interested in a thing, is there a good avenue for them expressing it? Or like, what are the uh, sort of honored subjects that you're allowed to be interested in as more important right. than just standard curricula? Yeah. Like, you know, the things I was really interested in were very um, prestigious in the sense that like, everyone currently recognizes some utility from them. Like it was uh, right. pro- computer science, like programming, algorithmic thinking, mathematics, physics, chemistry. These are all like honored in uh, current class curricula. But I imagine people are also interested in like many other things that maybe aren't as uh, clearly recognized. Like, yeah, I can speak from personal experience where I and many of the people I know spent their free time in high school playing video games, like a large percentage of it. I guess it feels kind of like clear that maybe this is not uh, a good thing to encourage over classes. But why does that feel clear? Why is that something maybe 
less good to allow uh, to override normal things? No, that's a good question. And I would like to un- better understand how to do that for students and also for parents who I think oftentimes put pressure on students to consider things that aren't necessarily of interest to them because they have a higher utility function, as you might say, Dave. <laughs> yeah, some things are considered a waste of time, but stu- you know, studying math is not going to be considered a waste of time. Right, yeah. It's great to have another voice on the podcast and to hear your story and benefit from your insights and, and your experiences. So I uh, thank you. And also, Sean, thanks for becoming being vulnerable and having your former student give a little bit of criticism about your class, but also praise you <laughs> as a teacher. So, And we thank our listeners for joining us and we'll look forward to the next episode. All right. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's fun.